Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the 42nd week of the 52 week project. It's been a rainy Friday and we're ready to have a check out of the new Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Here's Will with the crack. Yeah, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Well, that's 52 week film projects, unfortunately. Yeah, eight out of 10 for effort. Eight out of 10. Uh, and you know what? In the 52 week film project, that is a very good rating for us too. Uh, that is, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Pretty we're good. we're, we're quite there. tough. Um, so for those of you who are thinking, what the fuck just happened? Um, we've been away for a while and we thought, what better way to come back from yet another mini hiatus with our good friend, Matthew Johnson, introducing the show for us. Me and Will tend to flip between each other. I think we've alternated for the whole I think 41 so. episodes we've done. I think there is a chance that at one week we've accidentally sort of doubled up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't you, mention it. We don't mention it. You used to have this thing, didn't you, where we, we'd start the... I mean, everyone that's listened to these episodes before knows that uh, when we get down to the Critic Quote Awards, our best descriptions of the film, the most savage quotes, um, Will always gets tongue-tied. And there was a phase, I think it was around like episode 10, where you like, we, we'd do like four or five takes on the intro when it was your turn to introduce, because you'd be like, hello and welcome to the 52 Ribbity film. <laughs> Ribbity, Ribbity, yeah. yeah. It, well, I like myself when I'm all free flowing and relaxed and loose and scripted dialogue doesn't really work for me. Um, but, it, but it worked very well for Matt. It worked so well for Matt. So we are, uh, we're recording episode 42 today. We're going to be reviewing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which came out on Wednesday. We're recording on Friday the 16th of August. Nice. So getting it in nice and quick for yeah. us. Not taking two weeks after a film came out to review it. Oh my God. Um, I'm just and... looking at Jake's notes and the, the extensive notes that Jake has on every single Quentin Tarantino film is a joke. I've, I've been on a bit of a Tarantino <laughs> rampage. But we are, uh, this is... I think this is the first time we have ever recorded in front of, dare I say it, a live studio audience. We have a live studio uh, audience. We have, we have one diehard fan here in the studio today. Matt, give us a shout. Hootie hoo. Um, are, you, are you excited to listen to uh, the 52-week project as you... As you... Again, again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, we might be calling on Matt throughout the episode to share some wisdom with us. Uh it's been a while. We did X-Men Dark Phoenix last time we were here. It was maybe a month ago. Maybe yeah, a month, a month ago, yeah. Yeah, oh, there's the beer going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't know Is if that was picked up by the bike. all right? <laughs> that sounded like it... Uh, yeah, all fine. Good, 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 good. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Quentin Tarantino. It is his ninth directorial film. Yes, it is. And he says he's going to retire at ten. Do you think he will retire at 10? I don't know, man. I mean, he, he, when he says he's going to retire after his 10th film, is that written, produced and directed like, you know, all of his major staples? Or is that just 10th movie? Because he's already passed that mark. Uh, I think it must be written, directed and and created by ten, Quentin Tarantino. But it's interesting. He counts Kill Bill as, two, as, as one film. He does, split into yeah, two parts into two at parts. the request of Harvey Weinstein. Ah. who notoriously tried to force Peter Jackson to cram The Lord of the Rings into one feature-length film. And Peter Jackson basically just turned around to him one day when he got on a flight back from Auckland, New Zealand, and said, jog on, mate, I'm going to do this justice. Peter I'm gonna... Jackson the, is what, the Weinstein Company behind Lord of the Rings? No, it's... Um, it, New Line Cinema. It's New Line Cinema. Yeah, yeah. It's a Weinstein-associated thing, and oh, Harvey had some control okay. over it and wanted them to cut out huge scenes like Weinstein didn't want the Balrog to be in the Lord of the Rings film 
Um, he didn't want uh, the whole Gondor sequence to be in the film. I know it's unreal, but he tried to do the same thing with Kill Bill. Um, and Tarantino was like, come on, mate, give me a break. I'm trying to make a masterpiece here. It's my comeback movie. Um, and said, all right, fine, we'll split it over two. But there is, you know, there's no better way to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as an incredibly um, mature film that Tarantino's come out with very late into his career. Or very, you know, maybe not late, but he's been he's been making feature length films since Reservoir Dogs in 1992. So he's been around the block. He's been on the scene for a very very long time. He's very established. Um, but we can't really review this movie without going back through his filmography. I, how are we going to do this? Are you going to go through every single film? I think. Or are you gonna... I think. Let's do it. Let's see where this takes us. Do a quick fire of his major movies. Yep. Um, it's an interesting thing because I didn't think I've, I've been excited for this movie for a while, um, and I've kind of considered myself a Tarantino fan for a long time. But you know, I'm 23 years old, and a lot of his movies. I mean. Reservoir Dogs came out four years before we were born and From Dusk Till Dawn which he wrote and starred in um, came out the year we were born so when I watched Tarantino films in the past and I don't know what ones you've watched prior to this past week but I'd watched Kill Bill Volume 1 at some point when I was very young I'd absolutely watched Reservoir Dogs I'd watched um, Inglorious Bastards with my dad when he got it on DVD. And I've watched Django and The Hateful Eight because they're, they've kind of come out in the last four years when we've been adults. Yes. But... When we can, when we can lie about being 18 and then we're, when we're just past it. <laughs> just, just past it. Five years, mate. Half a, half a decade. Yeah, yeah. Um, time does go too quickly. We're, we're, we're old bastards now. Um, but it, it, this last week... I think you have, and, and I, I know I certainly have, um, gone on a bit of a Tarantino rampage. And I've tried to consume as many of his films prior to watching Hollywood um, to kind of see how I remember them and to actually accurately, as now a film reviewer, look at them and give them a rating yes. and stack them up against each other. And my journey through it was... Um, Brilliant. I mean, I have about three hours of commuting every day, so most of it was watched on trains, um, which isn't... I I think Tarantino would scoff at the idea of his movies being watched on a phone, on a train, on the way to London. But nonetheless, I got through most of them. Um, And it made me realise that I definitely did not appreciate them for the depth that they have and for the significance that they have at the ages I previously watched them. Yes, that's very true. That happens with me with Kill Bill. Kill Bill is one of those films that... I think it's I think it's one of those films that I always saw when I was a young child on the DVD stand in Woolworths. And it looked so iconic. <laughs> it and it's, and it's bright yellow and you think that looked... As, as a young kid, you think that looks cool. Exactly. But I, I don't remember how I felt when I watched Kill Bill Volume 1, but what I can certainly clarify from watching it again now is... There, there was so much of this film that must have been lost on me. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. I think I probably I probably watched that film when I was about 15. Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish? Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we, will, we will get, we will to the get foot into that. Um, but let's, right, let's go right from the start then. So in the last week, I've watched everything except the films that he wrote but didn't direct, yeah. meaning Natural Born Killers and True Romance. I haven't watched them. Mm. Never watched them. Mm. Um, 
The only other one that I tried to watch this week and just didn't, I don't know if it was because of Tarantino fatigue or maybe I just didn't enjoy it, but I watched about half of Jackie Brown, which came out in 1997, and I didn't really enjoy it. Fair. Which ones have you watched? I have watched, what, this week or... Generally, I haven't watched that many this week. I've watched half of Reservoir Dogs, which I'm planning to Brilliant. Um, start. Yeah, I know. It's really useful. Really useful yeah. when doing podcasts about Quentin Tarantino. Um, Wait, which half? The first or the second half? Yeah. <laughs> I started midway through the middle and then stopped like 40, just before the 47 end. 47 minutes 47 and 18 minutes, seconds. Yeah, to an hour, hour and 27. Yeah, 15 minutes before the end. No, so the films I've watched of Quentin Tarantino's are Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Inglorious Bastards, and Django Unchained. Um, and his scene in Sin City. Ah, yeah, which yeah. we f- reviewed. We did a review, and we fucking hated it. Yes, I think that other than which a- one was Quentin Tarantino's scene in that film? Oh, I can't remember. You keep talking. I'll look that up because I'm I'm interested what I think of that. But anyway, rattling through his filmography. So it started in 1992 with Reservoir Dogs. Now it's it's known um, Tarantino. He blagged his way into a film shop, like a movie rental shop. Um, job when he was very very young he wasn't old enough to work in the place and he just he gained this reputation for being this fountain of knowledge when it came to movies and he started writing his own scripts and he wrote the script to Reservoir Dogs and he was going to secure funding with a producer called Lawrence Bender who he has gone on to work with throughout most of his career um, for about $50,000 and it was going to be an indie film. Yeah. Um, and then Lawrence Bender, who was taking acting classes with Harvey Keitel, um, shared the script with him and said, Harvey, what do you think of this? And Harvey was like, you know what? I think this is fantastic. And as uh, part of the funding and a lot of the cast that they auditioned for the movie came through Harvey's connections. Oh. So it went from being this $50,000 film to being this... Well, it ended up being a cultural zeitgeist. It's probably the, other than Pulp Fiction, it's the most relevant of his films today. It's it's an early early gangster movie. Um, but it's a gangster movie. I mean, I've only watched half of it, so I can't fully comment. But um, I, I've i always known that Quentin Tarantino is inspired by the French auteurs of the, of the new wave. New wave French, cinema, yeah. New wave cinema. And the idea of them is taking away, which is what makes Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so interesting. We'll come on to that later. But... It's a movement away from the Hollywood plot-driven narratives and into more like cinema as an art form, where you're using the thing, you're, you're using the individual makings into, including like adding pieces of the cast and the crew and etc. and blurring the lines between that and showing that it is a film and showing the, the, and a bit the of, scaffolding bit of, behind the scenes and the making of, of it. A bit of fourth wall and and also kind of the the not like not like deliberately slapdash. That's a really bad way of saying it, but the deliberately um, practical way of creating special effects and scenes. So, I mean, even like the budget was so low that they, the cast used their own clothes for yeah. parts of the film and the iconic black and white suits that they wore, you know, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, they were provided free by a local designer to near where they were shooting um, who just loved gangster films. And he essentially provided what has become one of the most iconic um, dress wardrobes of of a modern Hollywood movie. That's cool. Um, and it's just like all of these little practical ways. And it, and it, this is something that Tarantino has strewn through his career, even even up until now in 2019. Uh, just thinking about things as if he was a wide-eyed kid with a Super 8 camera 
filming like a, a fake movie in his backyard he always wants you to come up with something that's not just being done by every other film production company and what was so especially amazing about reservoir dogs the bits that i've seen is what what it is is it's a gangster movie in quotes because a lot of it is not to do with the actual like plot driven story of a gangster thing you don't see the heist you see interspersed pieces of of film and cinema surrounding the heist but it's it's about normal conversations it's about how these characters when placed in a situation act and react with long pan camera shots mm. it's not about like a fully driven plot it's more about the art of like normal people having normal conversations in a in a classic cult scenario and that's what makes it so fabulous is that like these these characters feel so real and so grounded at the same time as this film is so artificial and has mm. such artifice, it's beautiful. I, yeah, but it also it's funny because Reservoir Dogs. I, I mean, so in summary, I think it's a terrific film. Even it holds up today. It's it's pre ridiculous runtime for Tarantino. So it's, yeah, so it's about it's a nice tidy hour and a half. It's an hour and it's th- not. It's an hour and thirty nine. Netflix Netflix gives right. you that exact specific deadline. It's um, <laughs> it's not uh two hours and forty seven minutes, which once upon a time in Hollywood is. Um, it's not the it's not the plus three hours that the extended cut of Hateful Eight is, uh, which is nice. Are you joking? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Three man. hours. The Hateful Eight is so long. The director's cut that Netflix in the US has released it as four separate episodes. Oh my god! Yeah, man, ridiculous. Um, is it worth it, or are you coming? I haven't. This? I haven't. I've just watched it standalone. I've, I've watched it all the way through. I haven't watched the episodic version. It, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because Netflix in- inspires such a binging culture that most people probably watch it in the four episode format and still sit there and watch all of it. Yeah. So, yeah. what does it really change? Um, but Reservoir Dogs only really became prevalent and, and popular after Pulp Fiction came out two years later. Yeah. So Pulp Fiction is, you know, widely considered Tarantino's best film. I think I personally, I left it off my binge in this last week because I watched it so many times. I couldn't really be bothered. I also did the same with Django Unchained. I've seen it a lot recently. It's a great film. Both of them are fantastic movies, but I just didn't feel the need to watch them again. Are you going to talk about Django in this list? Because I have a thing. We'll, have, need... we'll have a run through, yeah. Okay, because I, I have an um, alternative ending that I've created that I think mm, is better than the ending. Right. But I'll save that. But anyway, Pulp, Pulp Fiction came out two years later and it was this fantastic film. It, 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 it had like noir principles attached to it. It had these brilliant converging complex storylines that all intersect which becomes a staple of Tarantino at this but also point. non-linear so it confuses it and yeah it's it's wonderful brilliant 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 film um, I don't think anyone will disagree there really um, I think it's a landmark film in cinema I don't necessarily think that makes it the best of Tarantino's work and I don't think that it but I generally think it did change the cinema landscape and what you're expecting at the Oscars and didn't Uma Thurman win the Oscar that year for Best Actress for yeah, no, Pulp it Fiction? Didn't, it, it won Best Screenplay yeah, yeah. Um, it didn't win Best Picture it won Best Screenplay but it, cha- it, cha- it kind of changed the game especially for independent films in Hollywood but it also established his kind of um Tarantino has this real um, he, he plays on fictitious stories in non-fictional settings and subversion of history so that could be everything from low level stuff like he creates fake brands and fake TV adverts that feel reminiscent of the time period that his films are set in so something that's strewn through a lot of his films is this brand of tobacco called Red Apple Cigarettes and that is something that has um, popped up in Pulp Fiction, it's something that's popped up in Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, 
it pops up in the hateful eight even though it's set in the 1800s it's like red red apple smoking tobacco i love that um, and then it's also in once upon a time in hollywood at the end of the film rick dalton leonardo dicaprio's character the kind of credit sequence involves him doing like a fake tv advert for the cigarettes um so he kind of he subverts history by adding these fictional elements to um almost love letters to certain settings yeah that that actually took place so whether it's the uh nazi occupied germany or whether it's um the frontier um whether it's uh the deep south during you know the oppressed period like it's very clever what he does um and it's also playing with those specific genres of film he's playing with the the typical nazi films of the 1930s and 40s and then the later 19 films of the 50s and 60s the sort of mixture between propaganda and like Cold War propaganda, and then World War, and then before that World War Two propaganda, and then his Western films are very, very similar to like old spaghetti westerns. You see this especially in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Kill Bill Volume Two as well. Like it's a very spaghetti western influenced, mm. um, and then he plays with anime, etc. It's all these these, these subcultures of of cinema that he has real re- regards for and real respect. But, um, he, but I don't... he he almost riffs off them. I never feel like you know. There's you know what people say about like cultural appropriation, cultural pre- appreciation. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever culturally appropriates. I always think he culturally appreciates because it's always riffing on them and it's like this is the theme, this is the style I'm doing it in, but it's not what I'm doing. I'm riffing on yeah. it. I'm just taking well, look, bits of it and 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 ex- extenuating and and shaping and changing and tweaking. Well, well, that's actually something I read about recently. Is it's a long-standing thing that uh, throughout Tarantino's career he's been accused of stealing and copying other uh, other directors work other directors iconic work um for example the standoff scenes and a lot of reservoir dogs is meant to be very reminiscent of a korean crime film the name escapes me it's called like uh, house on fire or something like that but you can watch it scene by scene next to each other and you literally you will think like what the fuck like this is almost exactly the same film um but, but- he he has been very open about that in the past and he said all of the best artistic minds steal. They take and they redevelop and they continue to build on established new exciting principles. And that is not something that is new historically in you know um, the world of culture. I mean, Picasso famous, famously said something, he said something like, um, good artists copy, but great artists steal. Well, it's the age-old question of, like, is any piece of art ever ever original? Is there ever new art? Is there ever new films? Is there anything? Or is it just a, um, a rehashed development of previous genres and previous mediums and etc. mishmashed into mm. the new piece of art? Um, but I think what's so specific and great about Tarantino is he, is he understands that and then uses it as a riffing point to then extend ideas and, to a shocking extent... And then diminish ideas to a shocking extent. Yeah, so exactly. all, all very exciting. Once upon a time in Hollywood. All, all of this is like the bit. The oh, so much pre-build. I'm so excited to talk about the film. It's great, isn't it? Um, but just going through it. Um, post Pulp Fiction, uh, he spent three years between '94 and '97 uh, before he shot Jackie Brown, um, where films were released that he either wrote, produced, or starred in. Um, Two of the main ones being Natural Born Killers, which was Woody Harrelson and Oliver Stone, um, which was kind of praise slash controversial for its ultraviolence. You also had True Romance. 
and you had From Dusk Till Dawn, which is a Robert Rodriguez film. Have you seen From Dusk Till Dawn? I have not, but is that the film starring uh, Javier Bardem? Uh, I don't know if Javier, but he might be in it. Oh, well, then, if, um, he's, if he's not on the on the poster. I don't think I'm, he is. Well, then I'm not I think I would have recognised. I watched this the other night, and I had absolutely no idea what it was. I knew it was Robert Rodriguez's film, so I thought, all right, this is going to be a little bit grindhouse, a little bit weird. Um, I had no idea how weird it was going to be. This is um, George. Shit. This is George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino side by side as um, kind of criminal brothers who kidnap a Christian family with the dad being Harvey Keitel. Will is looking at pictures of the film on Google Holy Images as, God. as I'm talking. Um, so I went into this film with no pretext. I watched um, Pol- I, I watched Reservoir Dogs on Netflix and it came up as the next suggestion. So I just clicked straight onto it because it was only an hour and a half. This film is about George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino taking a Christian family hostage and holding themselves up in a strip club on the Mexican border called the Titty Twister. Um, Matt, have you... Audience member Matt, have you seen From Dust Till Dawn? Audience member no. Matt. He has not. Um, <laughs> brilliant bit of participation. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> this film is ridiculous. They end up in this strip club, this like Mexican strip club, and... Everyone turns into vampires, but this is like proper holy bad God. special effects, terrible CGI nineteen ninety six vampires. It's like completely unrealistic. It's absolutely ridiculous. And Selma Hayek plays oh my a God, stripper. That is Selma Hayek. Yeah, plays a stripper who comes out and does this really sensual dance with an anaconda around her neck. A real anaconda. No stunt women involved. Um, and she climbs onto this table and she pours whiskey down her leg into Quentin Tarantino's mouth and shoves her foot in his mouth. It, this is this is the start. 1996 marks the beginning of the Quentin Tarantino foot fetish. Yeah, and I think we all know why it began. Um, an interesting bit of context to that scene in this batshit ridiculous film, which I encourage all of you to watch because it is just like it's so over the top. Um, There's a Robert, TV series. Yeah, yeah. Netflix made it, and it's rubbish. I, <laughs> I, I tried to watch it after watching the film, and it's is that really Jessica bad. Alba? No idea. That looks exactly. Like um, Robert Rodriguez cast Summer Hayek in this role, and the, the role is basically about five minutes of her doing this like dance and then becoming a vampire, um, and then she gets killed like ten minutes later. But she, he really, really wanted her in this role. And she had this ridiculous, like she has a like a genuine um, medically recognized fe- like phobia of snakes, and Robert Rodriguez conned her into taking the part of the film despite the phobia of snakes by pretending that Madonna was up for the role and about to take it, and Selma Hayek then went, oh, well, all right, fine, I'll take it, and she went through two months of aversion therapy to be capable of doing the scene with the snake, Madonna was never contacted for the role. Wow. So it's like the biggest bluff ever. Um, this film was banned in Ireland for its gratuitous violence. It's now allowed in Ireland, um, but at the time, for about a year and a half, it wasn't. Um, it's just a ridiculous over-the-top B-movie. I wrote in my notes, uh, 7 out of 10, and then in brackets, but a strong 7. If only on entertainment value, value it would be a 9 out of 10. It's just ridiculous. It's so much fun. Oh, it's so, so as, as the critical podcasters that we are, we can't give it a seven out of ten. But in your like 
like animal. No, no, no. Crit- critical podcaster is still being really generous and giving it seven out of ten. The animal inside me is going five, nine. Twenty six <laughs> yeah. out of ten. It's so much fun. Oh wow! Um, it's a very, very entertaining film. It's what the Meg should have been. Uh, it absolutely <laughs> is. It absolutely is. The Meg is a poor replication. Um, anyway, year later, nineteen ninety seven, Jackie Brown. I tried, I really, really tried to watch this film, man, but I just, I got 45 minutes in, I found it really boring, it's got Samuel L. Jackson, it's got uh, Pam Greer, who was, you know, um, a very, very famous, in the 70s and 80s, black uh, exploitation actress, she was uh, Foxy Brown, she was like a very, very, very iconic woman, um, and they kind of, they play on that in this movie, and it's his kind of it's Tarantino's ode to black exploitation films of the 70s um, it's got Robert De Niro in it it's got a whole host it's got Chris Tucker in it I just didn't it didn't grip me I didn't enjoy it, it isn't Samuel L. Jackson wearing an odd hat and a goatee he's got like a terrible like he's got like um, a ponytail hat terrible thing. ponytail which yeah. is like kind of almost like red hair it's really Ooh. gross um, but it's kind of widely regarded as his least popular film it was after the powerhouses of Reservoir Dogs and Pop Fiction, to then come out with his third feature film as Jackie Brown, people accused it of being lazy, slow, and too indulgent. He kind of he had all of these very long prose scenes where characters would just talk and talk and talk like they're just sat in front of the TV, which, while we'll get onto in a bit, is the kind of thing that's come through his career into the modern day and is a large part of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Back then it just didn't really seem exciting enough after the films like the tour de force that was Pulp Fiction. So people didn't enjoy it, and I can kind of understand it, understand why. I found it a bit boring. He then took a seven-year hiatus. Yes. And he said previously that he did that because, quote-unquote, he's a human and he wanted to live and travel for a while, which I really respect. Um, but he also says that he had released three feature films and he'd written three scripts and all of those had kind of been partly produced while he was young and working in this film store which meant that he had for about seven years this huge bank of stuff to release and then when Jackie Brown came around he kind of ran out of stuff to do he didn't have anything new because he'd been working so hell-bent on producing all these things yeah so he stopped and he basically, for seven years, wrote and wrote and wrote and travelled and wrote and wrote and wrote so that he could then build up a new bank of things to bring out. Now, that new bank of things ended up being Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, which were shot in 2002 back-to-back and came out in 2003 and 2004, respectively. It was also Death Proof, which was a part two of a grindhouse double feature with Robert Rodriguez, who's yes. a long-standing friend of his. And it also became the bare bones of Inglorious Bastards, which came out in 2009. Now, Tarantino's comeback movie was Kill Bill Volume 1, which is arguably his most ballsy, um, I would say stylistically his most iconic film. Uh, I think I think in, t- in terms of pop culture nowadays, yeah. it definitely is. I think that yellow jumpsuit from Volume 1 is still iconically known if you, if you see any kind of thing that's like bright vivid yellow it's like oh you're wearing Kill Bill jumpsuit like it's so in our minds the even katanas today. and everything like it, it's just a, it's a very very well known just the way the marketing was done for that film yeah. and the the um, 
the characters associated with the film and the the costumes they wore and the cars they wore and the soundtrack. You wore, they all... wore cars. I'm joking. Sorry. No, sorry. Did I say the cars they <laughs> wore? The cars they oh, wore. Oh, fucking hell. Drink. Um, it's all very, very, um, yeah, like you said, very, very, very well known in pop culture nowadays. I have a question. Go on. Volume one or volume two? Okay. So, do, have you watched them recently? Uh, no. Uh, that's not true, actually. I think I watched them about two years ago. Back so, to back. So, I don't think I'd ever actually watched volume two. But I definitely watched volume one before. Yeah. What I realised in my youth that was missed was <laughs> the nuances, the ability to pick up on the fact that the while the action sequences, like the, the House of Blue Leaves sequence in Kill Bill Volume 1, I would say, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe it, it, it could be the best set piece other than the the film premiere in Inglorious Bastards, which I just think is like a perfect half an hour of cinema. Um, I think the House of Blue Leaves fight sequence with Lucy Liu and all of her henchmen in Kill Bill Volume 1 is just one of the most incredible action sequences ever filmed. I think it's amazing. Mm. Um, have, but, you seen the, have you seen the scene not in black and white? Do you know when it switches to black yes, and white? Yeah, yeah, where, and when there's water yeah. instead of the blood. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so ridiculous. I can't believe that you're like, literally just throwing water out. But it's so well filmed. No, it's, it's amazing. But it's... I always think the fact that Kill Bill Volume 1 is like the film is essentially a build-up before the Blue Ivy thing. Um... Uh, <laughs> Matt is eating our, very our, loudly. Our guest our guest audience member is eating chocolate very loudly. Do you know what, though? He can do what he's want. Yeah, I actually know oh, what, I'm going to have some. Matt, come over here for a minute. Kill Bill Volume 1 or Kill Bill Volume 2? Volume 2 all the way. Volume How, 2? Why? Why? Join us. Why, why Kill Bill Volume 2? There's more story, and that's why I'm missing it once in a time. Oh, goddamn! No, I, I, we're we're just we're just discussing volume one versus volume two currently, and you think volume two is better? Yeah, but the ending like disco, the ending like disco fight scene to finish off volume one, if I remember correctly, that was nuts. Yeah, House of Blue Leaves. Yeah, yeah. no, it is. I mean, I, I don't know. I I loved the first film. I. I loved it this time around watching it this past week because I really appreciated the just the the conversational scenes like when when the bride goes to visit Hattori Hanso and she asks him to make her the sword it's it's so powerful and every line is so interesting um and that was completely lost on me when I watched it when I was like 15 yeah um it's you know even like it's just so special when you think about how it was produced as well like this is a character and a story arc that was developed by Tarantino and Uma Thurman when they were filming Pulp Fiction in 1994 and then eight years later they actually produced this movie together and most of it was written while Tarantino was living briefly for about six months in LA with Uma Thurman, Ethan Hawke, and their newborn child. Wow. Who goes on to actually Maya Hawke stars in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's just, they're so, it's so incestuous. There's so many connections, man. It's like this one big weird fucked up family that makes m- scary movies. Scary? Um, some of them are quite scary. Which ones? Uh, oh, actually, no, I, I take that back. When you get onto Inglorious Bastards and, and Hateful Eight. Um, but anyway. Hateful Eight is scary. Anyway, I, I, I think I think Volume 1 is terrific. And I think it's 
it's more iconic and the soundtrack is better but watching volume two possibly for the first time i can't remember um the acting from daniel carradine as bill is just incredible now i think that you know in the kill bill films the bride goes through her list of five people she has to kill and the first two are um viper or whatever she's called the one with the daughter um and lucy Liu playing uh i can't remember her name but the yakuza mob boss in kill bill volume two the people she has to fight before she goes cottonmouth that's it before she has to go and fight bill she has to fight the woman with the eye patch uh, can't remember black her name. Mamba. Black Mamba, yeah. And, my, and <laughs> you accept that as fact. I, and, I don't know. I think that's true. And 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 Michael Madsen, who is you know a long-standing Tarantino cast member. He was Vic Vega, who iconically cut off the ear of the policeman in Reservoir Dogs. Spoilers. But they aren't the villains in Volume Two aren't quite as impressive, in my opinion, as Volume One. However, the story is considerably better. You learn about how. She went to train in the mountains with Pai Mei and she learned the like five finger death palm punch. death punch technique or whatever. Um, and you also, you, you see the resolution. You see her reunite with her daughter and fight Bill and it's just fantastic. So I think on story, volume two wins. Um, but on sheer entertainment value and... Um, the iconic nature of it, Volume 1 wins. Um, Just on the note of how impressive, again, going back to that House of Blue Leaves, Lucy Liu fight sequence in Volume 1 at the end, which is about 40 minutes long in the average cut of the film, it took 155 days to shoot. It took over eight weeks when they predicted a fortnight to shoot that scene. How much fucking... (laughs) <laughs> it's absolutely Stop. insane man yeah that's crazy. but also it's just it's just the relationship on on set with this film and it's it's a shame because towards the end of kill bill they're actually um tarantino asked uma thurman to get in a car and drive it for a scene and she actually ended up crashing um and it was quite a big thing um she had a fairly bad accident and she tried to get the film uh, production company to release the footage and they refused to um, it's widely considered because if they'd released it she would have sued them um, and apparently it made the final weeks on set of Kill Bill Volume 2 really strained she just felt like a tool um, she described it as fe- suddenly feeling like a tool when previously she was a huge part of the creative process um, and it broke her relationship with Tarantino for many years after. Yes. Um, but at the start of the process in 2002, when they shot volume one, um, she actually got pregnant again with her second child and they postponed filming. And when Tarantino was asked about why he postponed, because it actually cost the company, it cost Miramax quite a lot to postpone. He said, quote, if Joseph von Sternberg is getting ready to make Morocco and Marlene Dietrich gets pregnant, he waits for Dietrich. Yeah. And I think that's a really, like, I, I think that's a real testament to his character of he has built up these relationships where character, like actors cameo themselves into a lot of his films purely because he builds these relationships on set where he loves working with people and they love working with him. And in a largely Me Too hostile climate where he has worked very closely with Weinstein for many years he has 
pretty much escaped any kind of accusations from anyone. Yeah. There hasn't really been anything against him, which is quite nice to hear in this day and age. Well, I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that it does mean that he is not a bad guy and he doesn't know anything about it. It's really difficult with Harvey, not Harvey Weinstein, but with, with Quentin Tarantino because working so many years with Harvey Weinstein, you just, a lot of people were very quick to say like, how does he not know? It was such a... It was such a Hollywood secret and not like a hardly kept secret. How did Quentin Tarantino know? Well, he has he has said that he regrets the fact that he had the power to speak out and didn't. So he's kind of done that thing that a lot of them do, where they admit knowing that something wasn't right, but didn't really do anything about it. Yeah, and I think I think that it's still bad that he did that, and I think that he should be some like this there should should be some level of like criticism towards that but i also think that we need to understand that this the whole industry was the exact same mm. just because quentin tarantino did a lot of weinstein company films doesn't mean that he is any more liable than every single other weinstein company film of which there are, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yeah. different films with different productions where this is all happening the same uh, I think it's. I think it can be sometimes kind of fair when Tarantino is like attacked for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that it's, I think that there is. It's definitely a criticism. I think that, but I think the whole of Hollywood is at fault for this. The whole of Hollywood let this happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just Tarantino. Now we're now getting into the kind of the age where me and you were starting to watch these films. In two thousand and seven, he brought out Death Proof. We're at thirty seven um, minutes of the podcast, Jake, and we're at Death Proof. We, we should. Really, we're at two thousand and seven. You know what we should do? We do you should, know what year this is, we, Jake? We, it's twenty nineteen. We, we, we have do, eleven years left. We should do what Tarantino normally does with his films and release it as a volume one and a volume two. Oh my god! Volume one should be the history of Quentin Tarantino. And volume two should be the review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Continue. <laughs> we might as well. Cue the interlude music. Yeah. Um, so Death Proof 2007. Now, I had, <laughs> I, had, I had not watched this. Have you watched this? No. This I... is a Grindhouse film. Let's go through this really quickly. It's not very good. It's <laughs> widely, widely considered to not be very good. It's got Kurt Russell in the main role playing a guy ah. called Stuntman Mike. Um it's a Grindhouse film at the end of the day. Grindhouse films notoriously don't get great ratings, but have a good message and good special effects. I know one thing um, about this. I know one thing. I can, I'm can. i going to say one thing about this film. Go on, tell uh, me. Once, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the stunt, head stunt woman of the... the head Zoe the, Bell. Zoe Bell is in the film as Ken Russell's wife. And, and Quentin Tarantino has worked with her for years and years and years as a stunt yeah. coordinator. And in Death Proof, she has a scene, I believe, on a motorbike. So basically, Zoe Bell is a stunt woman who was Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill. Yes, yes, um, and, yeah. and and has basically coordinated stunts on most of Tarantino's films circa nineteen ninety seven. Uh, she's an Australian stunt woman. Does she, she have nice feet? I, I'm may, I have I'm no joking. idea. Um, Tarantino knows that. <laughs> exactly. Um, she probably does if she's worked on most exactly. of his films. I think that's the um, quota: is that you have to have nice feet. So, like, I'm sure that Leonardo DiCaprio's feet are beautiful. Yeah, it, it must really mean it must mean feet. that Samuel L. Jackson's feet are impeccable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Tim Roth's. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it's why Uma Thurman and him didn't work together again is that her feet got <laughs> really bad up to kill oh, Bill. Too. Anyway, <laughs> Zoe Bell. So she's an Australian stunt woman. She's done a lot of films with him. In Death Proof, she actually stars. As herself, and she is a character in the movie. 
um, does an incredible stunt where she like straps these belts to the sides of a car and stands on the bonnet um, as it's going like I don't know 200 miles an hour. Um, there's not a lot to say about this film. It's about a creepy man and a powerful car. And, um, <laughs> that is uh, the best summary or, of a film or, I've ever heard. It's about a creepy man with a powerful car. A creepy man with a powerful car. It kind of reminds me of uh, what's the Stephen King film about the car? Um, oh, come on. Herbie Fully Loaded? I'm joking. Uh, yeah, um, Mustang and Sally. Cars uh, 2. No, no, what's it called? Um, oh, we'll go back to it. Anyway, Top Gear, the Bolivia special. He, he's a creep with a muscle car. Um, and it's a good old fashioned grindhouse. Women kick his ass. Oh, like um, um, Dodge or whatever it's called. Um, it's like a Dodge Challenger. That's yeah, the car. yeah. Um, oh, I know this film. I'm, that's a really annoying now. Um, it's like Fast Load or Burnout or something like that. Whatever. Anyway, um, that was really mean. Sorry. Um, there's not a lot to say about this film other than like Will said the relationship with Zoe Bell um, it transitioned from being just about the stunts to actually starring in his films she went on to star in The Hateful Eight in a cameo role Vanishing Point is the film Vanishing Point yeah it is it's kind of an ode to those kind of bullet Steve McQueen bullet yeah, Steve yeah. McQueen racing films um, Zoe, Zoe Bell also was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, as Kurt Russell's wife which is just a funny thing because in Death Proof in 2007 Kurt Russell is this creep trying to kill her and in 2019 they cast him as husband and wife um, there's nothing really else to say about this film except for the fact that it's the first time that Eli Roth the famous director Eli Roth who did the Hostel films the kind of equivalent of Saw some people think they're better than the Saw films other people think they're terrible we've about... talked about this there's a guy called Will Paxton who gets killed in the first, in the first yes. film yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Um, anyway Eli Roth stars in Death Proof and he goes on to star as the Bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards. I love the Bear Jew. The best character in he won loads of awards for it as well and he doesn't even do that much but he's like he's a great <laughs> character. Anyway, that's all we need to say about Death Proof. That's Sol- all we need to say. Solid <laughs> ten minutes. Solid six out of ten. Um <laughs> I also wrote Final Car Chase and Flipped Character is great. I don't know what Flipped Character means. I was, flipped I character. was fucking drunk when I watched it. Um, 2009. Here we Inglourious go. Inglorious Bastards. Now, this is where we get into the films where me and you were probably old enough to actually start appreciating, appreciating Tarantino's craft. Yep. Inglorious Bastards is probably the first Tarantino film that I properly watched at an age where I wasn't scared of the gratuitous violence and really enjoyed it. And could appreciate it to not so much to the level as we are as twenty two and twenty three year old respectively, but like we were old enough to be, now understand the references, now have some kind of cultural backstory for what he was doing, and his intention was much more clear as opposed to Kill Bill, which is less. It was less that for me. For me, it was more about like, oh my god, I want to be wearing that yellow jumpsuit. Yeah. Um, but the, I just want to say, Inglorious Bastards for me is made. By the first scene alone makes that movie. It is absolutely incredible. I, I, I would probably... I don't know if it's because, like we said, the whole primacy effect, the first thing that you see is the thing you like the most, but I would probably argue that out of all the films we've discussed, Reservoir Dogs has a special place in my heart just because I think it's an awesome film that I've enjoyed since I was very young. Kill Bill Volume 1, again, it's very impressive, but I think the film that I've wholeheartedly enjoyed the most and been blown away by the acting from multiple cast members is Inglorious Bastards. I think so. Um, 
I think I, I think I think that Christoph Waltz playing um, Colonel Hans Lander, the the Jew hunter, gives me chills um, every time. I, I I think it might be other than the bride. I think it might be his best character. Well, it launched his whole career. The reason that he has the the the, the role in Django, and the reason he has the role was he in Dumbo. What's the film that he's in a circus? It, made, it launched his whole Tarantino career. Christoph Waltz was, was an esteemed actor prior to doing Glorious Bastards. I did not see him in anything. What right, did, you keep telling me? What, have, what, have, you, what have you seen? In, what did you see in Christoph Waltz in before in Glorious Bastards? Like mainstream films. Go on, you keep telling me about your thoughts about the movie and I'll, uh, I'll back that up in a okay, minute. Okay, okay. I will, I will, I, I, I'm interested to see. But um, yeah, no, the thing about Glorious Bastards is I think as a film... It's wonderful, but it's got some moments you're just like, not sure why that's there, etc. There's so like a bit of lagging time. Um, I'm thinking especially in the first kind of like 35, 40 minutes. But there are cut, there are scenes in that movie that blow my mind. Um, Michael Fassbender in the bar with the Nazi soldier. One of the films that blows my, one of the scenes that blows my mind. Yeah, As you said previously, the half an hour. Um, cinema scene at the end is Mate, incredible. Even even Michael Fassbender receiving his British Army briefing from Mike Myers is just absolutely terrific. Like he, you, you have this movie where Tarantino largely um, removed the typical revolving cast that he had in all of his films, and basically Death Proof in two thousand nine tanked. It didn't do well. And so what did he decide to do? He doubled down and went, right, fuck it. I'm not going to play it safe. I'm going to go to another country, do a location shoot with a largely international cast involving four different languages, cast like a largely cast of unknown actors and actresses. Some of the biggest roles in this film are people that were hardly ever in films, let alone in Hollywood films before this movie. He decided to just double down on the danger. He just went, fuck it, I'm just going to do this. And it, 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 he pulled it off. It's terrific. I, I would say that um, other than, with the exception of Christoph Waltz, a lot of the well-known actors and actresses in this movie are completely overshadowed by the ones that are largely unknown. Brad Pitt in this film, it's his first Tarantino film. And this is very important. When I was watching this back the other day, I thought, pay a lot of attention to Brad Pitt's role because obviously he's one of the two co-leads in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I found him in... He doesn't He doesn't overact, he doesn't underact. It's not a particularly impressive role. Um, he, just, he just does a perfectly serviceable job. Yeah. And he's an entertaining character, but he absolutely could have been written better or written funnier, but that's not the point. Because he wasn't trying to use Brad Pitt solely to be the star of the show. There are so many. There are so many different stars in *Inglorious Bastards*. It's all about the moments of the sh- of it. Christoph Waltz has the moment at the beginning, and throughout he he props up and just like I'm going to do some amazing acting now, and then leaves again, and then comes back, and then leaves, and then comes back, and then leaves. And you have the same thing with who was the main actress in it? Who's wonderful? Um, who's the French cinema writer. I don't know but she's terrific I, I, I don't know it's really sad that I don't know because she is wonderful and I know that she's got had a long French film career also just to just to interject just to prove you right um, <laughs> Christoph Waltz Wikipedia he's 62 um, he's a German Austrian actor 
And his breakout role came in Inglorious Bastards. I told so you. Are, you are completely right. I told um, you. I, I take that. I just think that it's it's fascinating that someone of such talent who went on to be Blofeld in Skyfall. I know. Uh, who went on to be the best character in Django Unchained other than Jamie Foxx's Django. Was he nominated for an Oscar for Big Eyes? Because he was in Big Eyes, wasn't he, with Amy Adams at some point. Uh, I've never seen Big Eyes. It's, uh, Big it's, Eyes? it's a Tim Burton film. Um, all I know about it is that Amy Adams was nominated for an Oscar. Mm. It was when I was following the Oscars completely religiously. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, Christoph Waltz as a character actor and, is wonderful. But I think Inglorious Bastards. I think he does his best work. But it's, I think it's better than Django. But it's also, mate, from Tarantino handing in a first draft of the script to calling that's a wrap on the production. It was 10 months. 10 months for arguably the most demanding and out-of-comfort-zone film he ever produced. I, I just think it's terrific. I think it's a really, really good film. And I think it almost... 2009, Glorious Bastards, it was kind of around the time when he really started to generate... With the rise of social media, he started to generate this fuck you big reputation as one of the most well-known or well-referenced directors in Hollywood. Yeah. And this was arguably his... If if in 2003, Kill Bill was his first uh, return to form, this is arguably his second return to form. I think I think it creates the new... The, the new Tarantino for the new era. I think this film marks that point. I think that from... From Reservoir Dogs and then and then f- completing that with Pulp Fiction to ki- to Kill Bill and then maybe Death Proof but we don't kind of count Death Proof. Um, that's like M- Mark One Tarantino, and then Mark Two Tarantino starts with Inglorious Bastards and then does Django, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's very from Inglorious Bastards onwards. It's very high budget deliberately picking iconic historical settings but kind of placing fictional elements into them and subverting and, the and subverting the and the usual endings of those historical narratives exactly so in glorious bastards the americans and the french win and then in django unchained the slaves get I mean their, i'm just just going to just going to let you know this like we're no. not living in, <laughs> oh, fuck you. we're not living in nazi fuck. germany right now no but you like, know you know what i mean you know what i mean they win in 1941 not 1945 yes i know you yeah. right <laughs> my date i'm just letting you know um, did you just click and say how about that i love you <laughs> but but then in django unchained um the slaves get their you know come up and over the slave owners earlier than they did sadly um then in hateful eight you've got the frontier west and help me out here will what like you think i've seen hateful eight no have you not seen hateful eight no oh, that's a shame do i want um, to see hateful eight it's, it sounds like three hours of like it's pure a, meh all right so, so so here's my my 10 cents on the final bits before we get to once Hang on, no, i have to i have to before you, i know that you've said you've not seen django unchained oh. for this group but you just let me have to do my spiel about django unchained do your spiel about django unchained django unchained talk about hateful it's eight. very brief it'll be very brief it'll be absolutely fine it's only 50 minutes into the podcast uh, um, Django Unchained fantastic wonderful Jake is taking his shirt off in an attempt to be trying to be cool because oh, we've been so drinking hot in here, mate. it's way too hot in our studio if someone wants to buy us a new studio please. indeed that's how it works um, 
Django Unchained. Fantastic film. I have a real problem with the ending from the point of Samuel Jackson doing that speech to Django just before he is about to be taken off and sold to another trader. And then what then happens is in a weird twist, per se, even though Tarantino want, likes to say that he does like bizarre non-historical endings, but the film Django Unchained actually equals Django being unchained. Uh, Django wins and he goes back to the house um, after Christoph Waltz has killed Leonardo DiCaprio and... Um, and, and but then Django is captured. He gets escapes from his captors and goes back and saves his woman. This is a very a long horse. roundabout point. What are you trying to say, Jake? You've been spending fifteen minutes talking about <laughs> history of Quentin Tarantino. Give me five. Um, however, the problem with this is that I just feel like the ending is tacked on. The last twenty minutes of the film is tacked on for sort of like a pure Hollywood ending. I don't understand why but it's there. It. But I would count. Oh, go on, finish your point. Count. Just let me finish my point. Go on. And you wait until I hear, it, hear this ending for the film. Welcome to our Marital Difficulties podcast. <laughs> exactly. This, is, this has been one of the podcasts has been today. Um, ex- what happens in my version is... This is your how it should have ended This is my Django how it should have ended all for right, Django right. A, take off the last 20 minutes. You only need five. Um, you don't need the last 20 to 30 minutes of Django blowing up Quentin Tarantino, going back to the house killing Stanley L. Jackson, taking his woman and riding on a horse. That is, I feel, for me, that is all overindulgence. And I feel like it's not a subversion of an ending. It, in fact, I think, takes away a lot of the amazing work done by Leonardo DiCaprio and Christoph Waltz in that scene. And I think, it, for me, it's, it feels like a, an add-on to the film that's not needed. My alternative scene. Go on. Have you seen the Assassin's Creed Revelations trailer? No, I have not. Have you not? Well, I will explain the Assassin's Creed Revelations trailer. Um, it's Assassin's Creed Revelations is a game that came out in 2010, 2011, after Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, one of the best Xbox 360 games of all please, time. Please let it let it be known to the jury that Jake is rolling his eyes. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you're wrong to roll your eyes, and I'll tell you why. Um, Assassin's Creed Revelations is a is the game that came afterwards, and it's got an, a YouTube advert that came after it. Um, and was released, etc. By who was, which had the music from Woodkid, uh, Run Boy Run. Run Boy Run. Actually, it's not. It's Iron. It's actually Iron by Woodkid. Run Boy Run came, comes in Assassin's Creed Three. But it it it's a big moment for Woodkid's career, and it's one of the most seen video game trailers of all time because it's so really? beautifully it's so beautifully created. Um, and the end of that scene is the assassin being captured, him walking down a plank to his grave and he's going to be hanged and the guy puts on the hanging thing as Woodkid cuts out an amazing rousing soundtrack of drums and power etc and the last scene is the assassin turning around and punching and then it just cuts to Assassin's Creed Revelations this is my version of Django you have Django's execution because of what he has done towards all of these situations. You have Samuel L. Jackson waxing lyrical about how he has let down his brothers, about his slave brotherhood and etc. That he does a similar enough speech to what Samuel L. Jackson does in the same movie when Django is captured. However, all this time Django is walking to his certain grave and etc. And then the whole screen goes silent. You just you just see a very long fangled way of putting a putting a noose on Django's neck and ready to go. And then just before the just before he's about to be hanged, he turns around, looking like he's about to punch and fight back, and then you have Django Unchained end credits. 
That is a better way of ending it because Django is still unchanged, but you leave it ambiguous. You build on the emotional energy of the previous couple of scenes and you don't make the film 20 minutes longer than it should be in the cinema. Um, that's just me, though. Jake's lost interest, however. No, no, no I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking it in. I'm taking it in. I, I think the only reason I, I disagree is because the true power of what he's trying to do in those final moments is he's trying to tack on in a very clever way Hollywood fairy tale endings to true historical events that did not have true romantic handsome right off into the sunset with the slave owner's house burning down moments that didn't exist for people in Django's position yeah and I think that while it is I think the the beautiful irony of it is that he's playing on the incredibly tacky, cheesy, overindulgent moments that would end famous Clint Eastwood films. And that's what he's doing. But I do take it that... Because I, th I think that when Tarantino makes these movies, he, he knows, I think he has the wisdom to write really sharp, not overly long, not overly padded films that have real subtlety and real nuance because he is so immersed in 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 all genres of film. But he, that's not what he wants to do, and that's not his point. He's trying to play on the typicalities of these movies. Yes, I understand what you're saying. However, in my opinion, I think I think one of the main things that Quentin Tarantino that I love Quentin Tarantino in a lot of ways but I think especially and I'm going to talk about this in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that what in our second hour in our second hour <laughs> volume two um, it's just about like at what point can he not just give away his give away some of his creative license and stop trolling slash being like I am an auteur I'm going to do this and just make a better film that's my problem is I think that it's it's now getting lost in too much tropes and I felt yeah, that's what Django right. was I felt like the last 20 minutes of it was lost in the in uh, in, in tropes and etc and I Fair also enough. think it's more limiting and I'll explain why because I think that what Tarantino is doing by doing that is saying this is my, as an auteur this is and as a director this is my standpoint on a film I think that Instead of that, he can make a more questioning, interesting film by leaving it perhaps more open-ended and not having to get all of, all of his tropes out in every film. That's mm. my opinion, right? Yeah, but then no, we fair agree enough, to fair disagree. Agree to disagree. Um, Hateful Eight. We, we, are now, we are now at the final uh, film in the history of Quentin Tarantino. I think uh, we're absolutely going to do this as a volume one and a volume two. Um, Hateful Eight came out in 2017. It's the penultimate film to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I rewatched it recently. I watched it once, I think, when we were at uni. And I think I watched it in the kind of setting where people were making food and chatting around the TV. And I wasn't really giving it the attention it deserved. So my memory of this film prior to rewatching it was it was all right. It was quite long. It all kind of takes place in one big room. Um, and it has a bunch of great actors, but not a lot happens. I realised when I sat and watched it with my dad the other night, sober, in a quiet setting where we didn't talk, we had the lights off, we watched it on a big screen, 
Um, I was severely wrong in my interpretation of this film. I actually think it's terrific. I would would go as far as to say that as an incredible amalgamation of all of these brilliant actors that he has collected through his career, Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Bruce Dern, um, it's just a, a perfect blend of what makes all of his other films so great, but it's in a very unique way. And it's, it's quite indulgent. It's essentially Tarantino takes a room full of people and makes them interact for nearly three hours. Um, but it is, it is the, I, I would say it's the, it's not my favourite Tarantino film, but it's the tightest script of a Tarantino film. It is the funniest Tarantino film, hands down. Like this film is laugh out loud hilarious. Like they it's just ridiculous the stuff that they say to each other and the tensions rise and while we're talking about kind of we haven't really discussed the soundtracks of these films neither me nor you are hugely talented music critics so i don't really think we can say an awful lot but what i can say is that speak for for yourself (laughs) what i can say is that um looking into it recently um there's a a very frequent compositional collaborator of Tarantino called Inicio Morricone, who is a... Is he related to Armando Iannucci? I don't know. I, I don't know, but he is... That was, that was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> he did that very seriously. <laughs> uh, but he is, he is like the Hans Zimmer before Hans Zimmer existed. He scored all of Sergio Leone's films. He scored The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, The Untouchables, The Exorcist... He is, this man is 90 years old and he is still putting in more graft than I think anyone our age is doing in any job. Can I ask, um, is, this, is he 98 years old in, in Hateful Eight? He's, or is, he's, he ni- he's 90 years old this year God. and he worked on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Um, but what, the reason I mention it is because he composed the sort of Japanese fusion soundtrack to the Kill Bill films. Um, which was at the time completely out of his realm of expertise, completely out of his comfort zone. And yeah. I would say it's become the most iconic soundtrack of Tarantino movies. Um, but he also did The Hateful Eight. And The Hateful Eight, um, it doesn't have a lot of original songs in it because it's set in the 1800s in the frontier west. But the way they build tension, not necessarily using songs, but just sounds and looming, lurking effects. Does it have the Tarantino? All done by Ennio. It's it's so intense. Does it have the Tarantino like mixture between like complete silence in a scene and then moving on to like loud soundtrack? Yeah, like or is it changed? It's it's not over the top. It's very like it's very layered. It's very complex. It's like. It, 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 this film, Hateful Eight, and you honestly, after this review, like you really do have to watch it, but it's like the way they ratchet up the tension, just bit by bit, it's like someone's turning, turning up the thermostat just a tiny bit every few minutes, and it's getting worse and worse and worse until it eventually gets unbearable, and obviously it ends up in this bloody mayhem like yeah. all of his films tend to. But it is... I would say The Hateful Eight is the best representation of everything that Tarantino has learnt, gained, and the people he has touched and who have worked with him throughout his career. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's his swan song, um, and I wouldn't say that of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think maybe we're yet to see that. But 
What I would say, if we're contrasting it to the movie that we just watched, we've just watched and we're about to review, is I'd say that it is a better representation holistically of all of his methods and techniques than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more experimental and it touches, it takes it takes a lot from his previous established kind of nuances, but it, it also goes in a different direction, uh, for better or worse. Right, okay. Um, that is the history of Quentin Tarantino, as told largely by Jake, but also <laughs> quite a lot by Will. Uh, what, what time are we clocking in at, mate? Hour, three minutes, 47 okay, seconds. So, so I think we move on to a volume two. So so we will we will leave it there for volume one. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening to the history of Quentin Tarantino. And join us in volume two for the review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We have to do all of our social things, because this is now going to be done as an episode of the podcast. Just say goodbye. No, I'm going to say, like, follow us on Instagram at 52 Week Film Project. Follow us on Twitter at 52 Week Film Project. Follow us on Facebook at 52 Week Film Project. Email us at 52 Week Film Project at gmail.com. And if you're not completely Tarantino'd out, click on to the next episode. Yes, do. Bye. Bye.